Hello and welcome to episode 418 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news, and ask questions on our web- website, thinkinglsat.com. Next Thursday, September 14th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Nathan is going to be teaching his regular class, but it will be free and available to anyone with a demon account. You can sign up for that at lsat.link forward slash free. I think, Nathan, you're just going to cover all three sections, right? Same thing I do in my normal Thursday class. We do one logic game, one reading comp passage, handful of logical reasoning questions. The whole goal is to show students how easy the LSAT really is. So I hope people will come and join. Yeah, again, you can sign up for that at lsat.link forward slash free. Last week on August 30th, um, the August 2023 scores were released. We just want to know how you did. So again, let us know at thinkinglsat.com. Today we have special guest, Aliza Schatzman. Thanks for joining us, Aliza. Are you joining us from Washington, D.C.? Yes, I am. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm in Vienna, so not too far from you. You are an attorney, an advocate based in Washington, D.C., who writes and speaks about judicial accountability, clerkships, and diversity in the courts. You got your JD at Wash U, a school that you know we talk about a lot on this show. After that, you clerked for a former D.C. Superior Court judge, and now you're the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project, whose mission is to ensure that law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who do not. Uh, Your writing on judicial ethics has appeared in numerous publications, including the Columbia Law Review, the Harvard Journal on Legislation, and the Yale Law and Policy Review. We want to hear a lot about, obviously, the Legal Accountability Project, what you're working on now. But before we even jump into that, Aliza, um, is there anything else you want to say about yourself? And then I want to hear a little bit about judicial clerkships, just because our audience, um, some of them are just starting this whole law school journey and may not even know what that is. My favorite topic. No, I think you covered it. Um, I was a golfer at Williams. I took three years between college and law school. And then I went to Wash U Law, aspiring to be a homicide prosecutor. So I decided to clerk, thinking that would launch my career. And yeah, exactly. So quick overview. I think a lot of our listeners are very savvy and they they know what a judicial clerkship is. But some people, and I think this is also part of your mission, right? The, law, the Legal Accountability Project is trying to help lots of people understand even what a judicial clerkship is and why it might be so sought after. What, what is that briefly? Yeah. So a clerkship is when a new attorney, typically fresh out of law school, sometimes with a few years work experience, spends a year or two working for and learning from a judge. And while tasks vary from chambers to chambers, law clerks draft orders and opinions, they conduct research, they go to court with the judge, they assist with judicial decision making. Meaning the experience is valuable both for the clerk soaking up the knowledge and to their future employers because they can kind of provide a window into how a judge thinks. Unfortunately, the messaging around clerkships on law school campuses is just uniformly positive. And students are told that they will develop this lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with the judges for whom they clerk. This position is going to confer only professional benefits Really nobody before I started talking about this was talking about the downsides to clerking. 
the enormous power disparity between a fresh out of law school clerk and a life tenured federal judge, the lack of workplace protections, the fact that law clerks are exempt from Title VII and the Civil Rights Act, the fact that judges have enormous power over their former clerk's careers. And as my experience illustrates, a negative reference from a judge can really derail your career. So I think it's important when we talk about clerkships to make the messaging more realistic rather than overly optimistic and to foster honest dialogue about the full range of clerkship experiences. Yeah. I mean, I think we got to hear about your experience. What happened? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, big lead in. So I decided to clerk in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. Um, I clerked there because I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the DC US Attorney's Office. So I wanted to clerk in the jurisdiction where I aspired to practice law. Um, unfortunately, beginning just weeks in, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable. My male co-clerk told me I was bossy, aggressive, nasty, that I had personality issues, stuff you would never say about a male clerk. Day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam. So obviously a big day in any young attorney's life. He calls me into his chambers, gets in my face and says, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And this was just devastating. I mean, this was my first legal job. Uh, this judge seemed to be singling me out for mistreatment. I remember crying myself to sleep at night, wishing I could be reassigned to a different judge. My workplace did not have an employee dispute resolution plan that might've enabled that to happen. And I knew I needed a full year of work experience to be eligible for my next job. So confided in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. And so I tried. In March, 2020, we transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. So I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. The judge ignored me for six weeks before calling me up in late April and firing me, telling me I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. Then he hung up on me. So I tried to use the reporting channels that were available to me. I called DC Courts HR and they said there was nothing they could do. HR doesn't regulate judges. Judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And they told me I should have known I was an at-will employee. So then I reached out to my law school to wash you seeking advice and support. Found out this judge had a history of harassing his clerks, that law school administrators, several professors, and the clerkships director, who still works at WashU and advises students on clerkships to this very day, knew about at the time I'd accepted this clerkship, decided to withhold this information from me because they wanted another student to clerk. So this was obviously really devastating. Took me a year to get back on my feet, secured my dream job in the DC US Attorney's Office, moved back to DC and intended to put all this behind me. So I was two weeks into training at the USAO in July, 2021. I had already started working there when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told that the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. So I remember crying on the phone with USAO leadership, DC courts leadership, they wouldn't tell me what the judges said. They said the decision was final. 
So I filed a judicial complaint, hired attorneys, and participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through that, found out he was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct. At the time, he'd filed the negative reference. The USA was really not alerted to those circumstances. And after he was removed from the bench for other reasons, he issued a clarifying statement to the USAO, addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims. But by then, the damage had been done. It had been way too long, and I was pretty much blackballed from my dream job. And so now in my work, one aspect of it is to share my experience And I always seek to underscore that my negative experience is not rare, but it's one that's rarely shared publicly due to the culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. Wow, that's a lot to uh, put out there. And so this is what prompted you to start the Legal Accountability Project. That's correct. I... During the summer of 2021, when I was participating in the judicial complaint process, I became aware of the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA. That is legislation that would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees. Law clerks, federal public defenders, folks like me currently are exempt from Title VII. We cannot sue our harassers and seek damages, which is outrageous. So I reached out to House and Senate offices involved with that legislation to share my experience and advocate for the bill. And then when they held a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing in March 2022, I provided written testimony sharing my experience and advocating for the legislation. And then in the weeks following that, the response was very positive. And so I began to throw around some ideas to further my advocacy work on behalf of clerks, which eventually inspired me to launch a legal accountability project last June to correct injustices I personally experienced as a law student and a law clerk, including the real lack of transparency in the clerkship application process, particularly on law school campuses, that causes far too many new attorneys to enter unsafe work environments because they lack information about judges, as well as a real lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. You say it's not a it's not rare. Um, I imagine you have some evidence for that. Good question. So there is a real dearth of data on this issue. The judiciary has been notoriously unwilling to conduct a workplace culture assessment. So individual circuits sometimes can collect data for private consumption, not public consumption. Um, In 2021, the DC circuit conducted a survey in which in that circuit alone, one of our 13 federal circuits, 57 judiciary employees experienced harassment or retaliation and an additional 134 witnessed or heard about problematic behaviors. Now, those data in just one federal circuit suggest a significant issue to be addressed, but the judiciary has been notoriously unwilling to do anything about this issue. Law clerks reach out to me, current and former, every single day, state and federal, from every law school across the country to share their negative experiences and then say, I have never shared this with my law school. I would never file a complaint, but, and that is a problem because the lack of reporting precludes progress, change. The judiciary can't take action on what it doesn't know about. And while it may suspect there are problems, the lack of data has really enabled them to discount the scope of the problem and disclaim responsibility for correcting it. So, uh, Legal Accountability Project has a clerkships database that's designed to fix this problem, I guess. 
Yes, it is. So our centralized clerkships database is legal tech that democratizes information about judges. So students have more information about more judges before they apply for clerkships. I spend a lot of time talking to students and I'll often ask, how do you obtain information about judges as managers and the clerkship experience before applying? And spoiler alert, whether you go to a T5 or a regional school or somewhere in between, there is just a dearth of information about judges. A handful of law schools do conduct a post-clerkship survey and keep that in an internal database or physical binders in the clerkship's office. But they are not asking the right questions. They are not capturing mistreatment. They understand that their surveys do not capture the scope of the problems I talk about, both because they don't want to know about mistreatment and because they are dissuading law clerks from sharing their negative experiences. And regardless of what any law school can do internally, there is a ceiling on the number of judges they will ever know about, which is totally dependent on who alums have clerked for in the past and their willingness to share information with their law schools, which if it's negative, they do not. And that is a problem. Every school has this ceiling on the number of judges they know about. So our database corrects both information gaps among law schools and troublingly among students within the same law school, as well as a lack of information sharing. Because right now, if you are a student trying to get information about judges, you're going to be reaching out to former clerks. Unfortunately, if the experience is negative, they are typically unwilling to share it. And depending on your law school's alumni network, it may be difficult for you to connect with clerks who are going to give you the information. So in our database, law clerks right now from across the country are submitting post-clerkship surveys, telling us about their experience, the judge as a manager, chamber's culture, feedback provided, types of tasks, hours, all kinds of stuff you might want to know before working closely in a small workplace with an enormous power disparity for a year or two with a judge. And when this goes live this school year, students will read all the surveys, not just their alum surveys, but everybody who submitted into this database. This is the best way to ensure positive clerkship experiences, to democratize information about judges, and to diversify the clerkship applicant pool and the legal profession, because it is historically marginalized groups who disproportionately lack the formal networks and information channels that help some of their peers get clerkships. The surveys themselves, are are they going to be anonymous? Good question. So yes, the default option is to submit a survey anonymously. People can put their name on it if they choose. They are not anonymous to the Legal Accountability Project. They are just anonymous in the database. People create accounts with their full name, law school, class year, create an email address and password account, then they submit a survey. We on the back end verify who they are and that they clerked, and we're having their law schools help us do that. It almost sounds like the law schools have conflicting um, interests here, right? Like you you alluded to it earlier, you were saying that Wash U wanted you to get that clerkship, right? That looks great for them. Oh, look at all the people who are getting clerkships. And so we're not going to tell you or... Maybe it's not so deliberate, but it's just negligently not telling you about right the problems that they might have heard about the judge that you ended up working for. At the same time, this information can be very helpful to them and can help their students get clerkships. So <laughs> how does that how does that work together or what's what's going on there, I guess? 
they have a perverse disincentive to not share negative information with students about judges because the messaging around clerkships is that you should accept the first clerkship you are offered. And then even a quote, challenging clerkship, which is a euphemism for mistreatment is worth it for the prestige. And when we think about some of the notorious harassers in the judiciary, those folks got away with outrageous misconduct for decades because it was an open secret that these judges were harassing their clerks. The only people who didn't know that information were the students applying for clerkships who needed it. So yes, this information will help everybody to identify better clerkships. Um, but it's about conveying to law schools that information about judges who mistreat their clerks needs to be shared with all the students who seek it and also, frankly, with judiciary leadership who are in a position to exert discipline, conduct investigations, make change. Law schools seem weirdly fearful of the judiciary, and they're fearful about pissing off even just one judge. So LAP has received a lot of support from judges who think it's time to use kind of transparency and DEI work, and they understand this is a recruiting tool for themselves and their courts. Uh, but I worry that some law schools are fearful about pissing off even the judges known to mistreat their clerks. And really, you should not be sending your students to clerk for anyone who opposes transparency, thinks they are above reviews, does not want their chambers culture and management style to be known. But this is an enormous uphill battle because the law schools have cowered to even the notorious harassers for so long. What do you think their main concern is there? So they want to make sure that their students get as many clerkships as possible, the most prestigious ones possible. And they really don't want to know about workplace mistreatment because I think they worry it'll dissuade some students from clerking. I encourage everybody to consider clerking, but it's about being mindful about who you clerk for in a way students right now cannot. And there are certainly some judges I would dissuade students from clerking for. And I always ask law, law school clerkship directors, deans, and faculty members, do you dissuade students from clerking for folks known to mistreat their clerks? They often say no. That is outrageous. We cannot, we cannot solve these problems if we are continuing to funnel students into clerkships with notorious harassers. Their counter would be... This is the system we have. We have to work within this system. You know, it in private moments, they would say partially we're ranked based on what percentage of students we send into federal clerkships. So we've got to take what we can get. Also, uh, sorry, really quick thought on that. Before the U.S. News ranking system, right, it, it allocated 40% to reputation and wasn't like 25% of that or 20% of that. Judges? I, I can't remember. What judges say about the schools. Yeah. So, yeah, that could be one reason to make like sure. Like a very direct. Try to play nice with all the judges, yeah. So, interestingly enough, we receive a lot of support from judges who reach out to law schools and urge them to participate in this initiative. So, we want to change the messaging. So, maybe it's not that you fear pissing off judges by participating. You fear pissing off judges by not participating. Yeah, well, the ones who are who are doing well, right? They want that to be known so they can be more selective in terms of the candidates they get because it's basically, I mean, this sounds, I don't mean to like oversimplify what you're doing, but it almost sounds like Yelp for 
judges yep. or something our like that. Our attorneys right? have told us we can call it Yelp for judges. So we're fine okay. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's about reviewing judges as managers, reviewing the clerkship experience and yeah, judges who are doing the right thing. And most of them feel that they are, even if they are not have nothing to worry about. This is going to spotlight their role as manager and mentor for the ones doing the wrong thing. I suspect they'll be quietly opposed, but uh, it's a red flag if anybody's going to publicly oppose transparency and we're going to message it that, that way. But law schools, the top schools are still going to get lots of students' clerkships, fancy federal clerkships. They can afford to be selective and they should be. It sounds like this problem is much more widespread, obviously, than it appears to be because of these incentives to suppress this information. At the same time, do you have a sense of how widespread it is? Are we talking 1% of judges, 5% of judges? Is there any way to even tell that at this point? That's a good question. So I receive outreach from law students from the vast majority of law schools to talk about a negative experience. So I think that this touches every single courthouse every single year. Now, there is obviously a variety of what is a negative experience, things that would otherwise be legally actionable, sexual harassment, discrimination, retaliation, and people who are creating an overly hierarchical, imposing work environment, asking clerks to do non-judicial tasks like dog walking, laundry fetching, people who expect their clerks to work 20-hour days, work on the weekends. So there's a variety of negative experiences, but there are far too many judges not creating a positive work environment right now. And it is not only a widespread problem, but it requires judiciary oversight. Judges do not receive any training on their role as managers. They are not overseen by anybody. The perception within these courthouses is that every judge's chambers is their own little fiefdom and no one else should interfere. But look, it's time for people to interfere because we've gone decades without any progress on this issue. And as we think about people who are mistreated in their clerkships, it affects your relationship with the law, your law degree, whether you even stay in the profession. Dog walking? <laughs> I love how that's what you latched onto from that. Yes. <laughs> There's more substantive stuff there, but that just uh, stuck out to me. I guess this is the kind of thing that they, some judges do. huh? So there's been some dialogue recently about uh, federal circuit judge Pauline Newman, the 96 year old judge who um, is being investigated for withholding information about her uh, disability status or a potential disability. And one of the things she has been tasked with she's tasked her clerks with doing is fetching her laundry and driving her to doctor's appointments. So that has engendered some dialogue about non-judicial tasks, including dog walking. Hmm. Nathan. Oh, I was just going to ask if, if there are uh, female harassers as well as male harassers, I was picturing this being like 99% male harassers. I'm glad to know there are poorly behaved uh, women judges as well. Good question. This spans the gender and political spectrum. There are definitely female judges who mistreat their male and female clerks. Nobody is exempt from these problematic behaviors. And I worry that the longer some of these judges are on the bench, the more they live in this kind of rarefied air where they perceive themselves to be untouchable. I think it's a generational issue, actually. And it speaks to whether we should continue to confer upon judges' life tenure, whether we should think about term limits or a mandatory retirement age. I'm curious how many schools are involved in this project right now? 
Good question. So I am speaking with more than 70 law schools right now about this. We're at different stages with different schools. As you can imagine, some schools are skeptical. Some are in wait and see mode. And unfortunately, wait and see really means that students are going to go another year without desperately needed resources. So I work hard to make progress with every school um, and we're going to continue working on it. I visited more than 20 law schools last year for clerkships programming, visiting a bunch more this year. And last year, we were just talking about an idea, this thing we were building, this clerkships database. Now it's a working product that I am demoing for clerkship directors and deans and students. And we are galvanizing student support for these initiatives everywhere we go. So basically, you can just go into your database and search for a judge's name. And that I imagine there are several judges with similar names, but those judges pop up and then you can see feedback or survey results about that judge. Is that how that works? Is there a numeric rating system as well, or is it just uh, just text? Good question. So we have two ratings. It is positive, negative, and neutral on the judge as a manager and on the clerkship experience. Whenever you click on a judge's name, their profile comes up. So it's their name, state, law school, appointing president or governor, if applicable. And then it is survey responses by former clerks. You can click and open the survey and you can read the entire multi-page survey, or you can look at the top line feedback. And we encourage people to do robust research on judges and then make their best, make an informed decision. Use your best judgment in a way students really cannot right now. I imagine your tool can help uh, students apply broadly, right? One thing that we always tell uh, law school applicants is, hey, <laughs> you need to apply broadly, apply to multiple schools so that you know what your worth is in the marketplace. You can see your options and not be cornered into one option because you yourself only applied to one or two schools, right? It sounds like your database would just give people, wow, like, okay, here's all these judges. Are judges included even if they don't have reviews so that people can just say, hey, look, I want to apply broadly. I don't even know if that's a, a, a smart idea, but. So it does enable students to apply broadly, which is why a lot of judges perceive this as a recruiting tool, especially state court judges who get fewer applicants, federal judges who live in faraway places. Judges are only in the database once there are reviews submitted. So we have a disclaimer at the top. This doesn't represent the scope of all judges. If you don't find surveys, it's because there are no reviews yet. So that's why we are trying to work with as many law schools as possible to send out our survey. We want to capture as broad a swath as possible of state and federal judges and the full range of clerkship experiences. You said that law students are encouraged to take the first clerkship they're offered. Is that, was that your experience at WashU? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And this is terrible advice that law schools continue to give. And they do it because, again, they are fearful of the judiciary and they perceive that a judge will be offended if you decline their offer. But look, in other legal jobs, you can think about it. You can ask for more time. You can turn down an offer. There's this terrible culture of exploding offers in the judiciary, which is you're given 24 hours or you have to accept the clerkship offer on the spot. We need to be encouraging people to take more time to think about an offer. Wow. Okay. Interesting. How does the process even work from, is it, does it always go through the schools first? Are you like applying through your school? Good question. No. So it's different in the state and federal system. 
A lot of federal clerkship applications are done through OSCAR, the online system for clerkship application and review, but judges don't have to follow OSCAR. They don't have to accept online applications. They don't need to follow the OSCAR hiring plan, which encourages judges to hire beginning June after 2L year, giving people more grades and more experiences. Um, some judges do not accept applications on OSCAR. Some are still looking for paper applications. And there are thousands of federal judges, thousands of state court judges, and keeping track of what every judge wants, their timelines, their paper application is overwhelming for students. So a lot of the processes are run through these law schools who unfortunately kind of gatekeep the process, gatekeep professor recommenders. Um, and it's a disservice to students because there's a lack of culturally sensitive clerkship advising. And in at many schools, they're really prioritizing the top applicants and kind of dissuading other people from applying. So it's really a disservice to run clerkships through these law schools. Seems like another reason to be a big fish in a small pond when you go to law school. Um, we always talk about taking a scholarship at a slightly lower ranked school. Wash U comes up a lot because Wash U gives lots of scholarships. They're you know just outside the top 14 and they need to get those top applicants. They offer the scholarships in order to get those top applicants. But it wouldn't surprise me to learn that at Wash U, they were doing exactly this kind of gatekeeping where it's like, yeah, we place federal clerkships or federal clerks and the people that we're going to give those jobs to are going to be the people who are already stars at, you know, on our campus. Does that seem to be how it works? Washi was focused on the number of clerkship placements, period, and climbing their way up the rankings every little bit by funneling people into clerkships they know or suspect are bad. And um, look, they could change the perception of themselves in the legal community by engaging with LAP on this initiative. But right now, the perception about them is they just funnel people into jobs they know or suspect are bad. Because more clerkships is better for them. They perceive it to be that way. Yes, they don't care too much about whether the experience is positive and whether the alumni think good things about the school after they graduate. Certainly, yeah, in the long run, right? better clerkships would be better because then you'd have better job outcomes and so forth. But it's, it's, it's that immediate reward. And yeah, for climbing too- the U S news ranking next yeah. year, it's a, yeah. it, it would hurt them um, mm-hmm. in the short term. And they're one of like three schools still in the U S news ranking. So they're going to climb a lot. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the schools are in the U S news rankings. The, they just are one of the schools that continues to participate in the survey that U S news sends out. Um, the question I wanted to ask, though, so you're requiring school support to verify that the clerkship actually happened. That means, unfortunately, that if WashU doesn't want to participate, then all of those WashU clerkships, which you're saying are tend to be some bad clerkships, those reports are not making it into into your database. Not exactly, no. So LAP can verify people who clerked. We want law schools to participate, to pay to subscribe and give their students access to reading the surveys. We initially thought that law schools would be the only ones sending out our survey. Um, When law schools did not get on board quickly enough, we decided to open it up. So we are sending out the survey in a variety of ways to fill out the database and then coming back to these schools. 
So what happens by WashU not participating is that their students go another year without this information. And schools like WashU and some others in the T20 do not even conduct a post-clerkship survey. They have spotty alumni network connections. Their students at WashU right now are going without any information about judges and are basically applying blind. We think those type of schools should be the first to get on board. This would supplant their resources because they have no resources. But you don't need, I guess you don't need the schools to verify, right? Is that what you're saying? So you can verify the clerkship on your own. Okay. I can verify, but we also have these really awesome administrator dashboards in the database. So as schools come on board, they're going to be checking off students who clerked, who they clerked for. They'll get read-only access to surveys the same way students do. So if the survey is anonymous, the law school will read the anonymous survey. But we are encouraging them to help us verify law clerks submitting surveys and then students creating accounts when this goes live. So yeah, their role is to pay to subscribe because obviously this is legal tech. It's expensive to build and maintain. We want them to send out our survey to their alumni networks, which are more robust than ours. So we've done a pretty good job identifying law clerk alumni. And then the students and young alums get access when they are considering a clerkship or a judicial externship. This is a really important transparency initiative. And if a few law schools step forward to make change, change will be made. More will come on board quickly. Law schools are the ideal vectors for change here because the judiciary, like I work with them too, but they're not making change anytime soon. Law schools could. They could stop sending students to notorious harassers. They could stop sending their best candidates to judges who are problematic. They could make changes and it's time that they do. Maybe you can though, right? I think you mentioned this earlier, get through the judiciary by going to those judges who want this, right? To become more prominent in their own sense and then because of their good behavior and get better applicants, maybe. You mentioned this is expensive. I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, it takes, <laughs> takes money to create a good tech product. How the heck did you launch this? <laughs> um, so I have no formal fundraising experience. So approaching individual donors, um, I mean, we will ultimately seek grant funding. It will ultimately be a subscription model. So law schools will pay. So individual fundraising from individual donors. Um, and my board helps me with that too, but it's really pounding the pavement, explaining why this is valuable. Um, we also are seeking sponsorship from law firms who understand that this helps them diversify their hiring. And so that's kind of how we've done it. Um, we're a nonprofit. But we basically had to fundraise like a legal tech startup to get this up and running. I received some advice in the early days that if you build it, schools will come. And so I did that. And I've just been overwhelmed by the number of people submitting surveys. And I've appreciated the interest from many law schools. We're almost there. We're not there yet, but we're, we're excited about the response. And for the challenging law schools or the really hostile ones, we circle back with them too. Do uh, do you ever struggle to get clerks to former clerks to fill out these surveys, even though they're anonymous? Are are they ever worried that if they write something negative, it's going to be obvious who wrote it? Excellent question. The reason that law clerks are not sharing their experiences is because they fear reputational harm in the legal community or retaliation by judges for saying anything even lukewarm about a judge. And as my experience illustrates, judges can exert that kind of influence over their former clerks' careers. 
That is one of the big reasons why the post-clerkship surveys, even within these law school internal databases, are uniformly positive. With the occasional contact me, which is supposed to be a euphemism for, I was mistreated, but I'm not gonna write this in a survey. We have found that the option of submitting anonymously, as well as the centralized national nature of this database, vastly increases the candor of responses. But I'm also out there every single day, and I have been for 15, 16 months now, sharing my experience, talking about a culture of reporting, and law clerks trust me way more than they trust their law schools with this information. So those are just some reasons why we think this is going to increase the candor of responses, which is important. I was thinking about our audience, right? So some of the people who listen to this show are in law school, but the vast, vast majority are just getting started with preparing for the LSAT or even just thinking about law school, like, oh, do I even want to do this? Um, or maybe they come in thinking, I definitely want to do this. And we try to convince them that maybe they need to think through it a little more carefully. But what would you say to someone who's applying to or planning to apply to law school in the next year or so about, I don't know, clerkships, law school, um, what to look forward to, um, what to be careful of? Yeah. Great question. So I would encourage you to only attend law school if you want to practice law. I wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator. That's why I went to law school. I got the prosecutor bug, decided that I wanted to be a, an AUSA, but I always knew that I wanted to practice law. While you can do anything with a law degree, you certainly don't need to spend the time and money to get one if you don't want to practice law. I encourage everybody to be, consider clerking. It's a valuable experience, but it's about being mindful about who you clerk for. And that's why candid dialogue is so important. I would caution people, if you are picking law schools based on whether and how you're going to get a clerkship, the law schools that send the greatest number of clerks, period, not the best ones on ensuring positive clerkship experiences. And so you should really think about what they're doing to get 100 or more students' clerkships. And if the ranking discrepancy is just one or two spots between these law schools, and there's a vast discrepancy in the number of clerks they send, what do you think they're doing to increase their numbers? So that's what I would say. Um, how do people get ready for like, yeah, how do people get ready for a clerkship? What's the timeline? for that? Good question. So this is something you need to be thinking about 1L year when you start, because it's about building relationships with professors who are going to be recommenders. It is about creating a robust resume with work experience. It is about getting a good writing sample. It is really about building the relationships with professors so you can take upper level courses. So there's all kinds of things you need to be thinking about. I would suggest going to office hours, connecting with professors, talking about their scholarship as well as the course. And if you like them, plan to take an upper level class with them. Um, go to your clerkship office, 1L year. They're typically pretty approachable for 1Ls. And then 2L year, you apply uh, physically in June of 2L year, but you're compiling your applications before that. Um, people can do judicial internships during the summer or semester to connect with judges as well. And that's often useful. Um, but it's about thinking through where you want to live, what you want to do, and really being intentional about your career path. Two, uh, well, one question that's even maybe more basic than that. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between um, federal clerkships and state clerkships? 
Uh, two, is there anything that students can do before they even start law school to get ready for clerkships? I'm imagining Ben, uh, I'm imagining you and I asking our students, you know, the ones who are like, no, I have to start law school this fall. Mm. I want to ask that, you know, it's like, oh, really? So are you going to clerk and see if they have any kind of like any, you know, they're what clerk, (laughs) what are you talking about? Could they maybe be doing stuff in advance? I encounter plenty of pre-law students who are already thinking about clerkships, who are asking, is this law school I want to go to a good one for clerkships? So yeah, even before law school, you can can connect with judges. Um, So my undergrad, Williams, um, many Williams alums are now judges. So I can connect with them before I even attend law school just to seek career advice, get your name on their radar. Um, and you can plan out a one L summer internship with a judge basically before you start or right when you start law school, uh, the difference between state and federal clerkships. So federal judges, uh, article three judges have life tenure. Article one judges are judges appointed by Congress who serve for 15 year terms. Um, federal clerkships are considered more prestigious, though. I don't know that they necessarily should be. Um, Many judges hire on the Oscar hiring plan timeline, which is you apply June to L year. State clerkships, every state has uh, lower level courts, appellate courts, and a state Supreme Court, and they all hire clerks. Um, So in terms of the difference between the positions, I actually think that a state clerkship is a better experience if you want to be a trial attorney because you will be in court. You will see a variety of criminal and civil matters. Um, those are the general differences. Multiple people, multiple people, people typically do multiple clerkships. If they don't get a federal clerkship the first time around, they'll start at a state level or they'll do a district court clerkship and then an appellate clerkship after that. Um, so yeah. That's after, so they graduate and then they go to a state, they'll do a district level courtship, uh, clerkship, and then they'll, the next year they'll be applying, I guess, right when they start that district level. um, Most appellate judges hire several years out. So you will graduate from law school with two clerkships, your district and your appellate clerkship. Oh, wow. Which creates some challenges because not everybody can afford to pick up and move to a faraway place for a relatively low paying job every year or two. Um, So it's a problem that some federal judges expect work experience, some don't, most state court judges do not. But the expectations for applicants vary so much that it makes it really challenging to compile information to keep track of timelines, deadlines, and expectations. You said low pain. Yeah. Uh, I do have this vague sense of when my friends were doing clerkships and then going back to the law firm or whatever, they they definitely were taking a pay cut, but that was from a law firm salary. And then they were expecting to get a boost, you know, a bonus when they came back because of their experience. But when you say low pain, can you give us like a sense of where on the spectrum this is, these clerkships? Great question. One of the things I hear from law schools a lot is that it's hard to encourage students to clerk, particularly first-gen students and other historically marginalized groups, because they've taken out loans and they want to start their career, so they want to go straight to big law. So I think the state court clerkship salaries are about 64000 I think the federal ones are closer to 
80,000 in line with like federal starting salaries for other jobs. I mean, I was a public interest person always. So I was expecting that salary to be kind of in line with the salary I would get after the clerkship as well. But it is certainly a pay cut from big law. And yes, law firms offer enormous bonuses to former clerks, kind of encouraging them to clerk. But I think it's still an uphill battle for many people to encourage them to not start with a big law salary. And I think that's a larger problem with the legal profession. It's fine to pursue big law, but we need more like prosecutors, public defenders, public interest attorneys. We don't really need more law firm associates. Yeah. This is my public interest soapbox right here. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, oh, yeah. So you you mentioned uh, reaching out to judges even before you go to law school. Obviously, you, you, you could continue doing so during law school. That would be immensely helpful, I imagine, to make those connections. Can you get into the nuts and bolts of that communication a little bit? I think some people get the idea, okay, yeah, I should reach out to some judges, but it's like, First, where do I even start? We've mentioned LinkedIn on this show sometimes, but um, even then, I imagine some people reach out to judges and their their solicitation just falls flat because of the way they reach out versus someone else who might do a little research and that could go a long way in terms of piquing the interest of the judge. Um, do you have any suggestions there? Great question. So I'm a big fan of networking. I was a very aggressive networker, even as an undergrad. Most colleges have an alumni database where you can search alums and get their email addresses. Judges who are alums, their email addresses are right there for you to reach out to them. So yeah, that is a great in. I am a fellow you know, Williams College alum. I am an aspiring law student. Put that in the subject line and your class year. And then you know, try to connect over the common college experience. It is a skill that you're going to need as an attorney, networking, putting yourself out there, pitching yourself. So I think this is an excellent place to start with a relatively warm connection, the alumni connection, and putting yourself out there. So it's kind of how I do it. Yeah, it just strikes me that it's stuff that could happen before you even start law school. I tell the show the story on the podcast all the time how I was amazed in my 1L year uh, first semester, 1L year, and I'm looking around the classroom and there's people there in a suit because they are going to an interview. And I'm, I'm like, what? This is October of our first semester of 1L. How are you already doing this stuff? And uh, yeah, I, ju I just think it um, makes it you know, for all, for the, we, we get pushback from students who are like, no, I, I can't afford to, you know, take another year and get a better LSAT and end up getting myself a better deal on law school. <laughs> they, they think they can't, or they, they perceive it as this waste of time. But what they maybe don't realize is that if they do per, pursue this plan of starting law school as soon as possible, not only are they going to be shortchanging themselves on what kinds of schools they could get into and what kinds of scholarships they might be able to get, but they also might be shortchanging their, their experience as far as job searching goes, because there could be people that are sitting in your classroom with you in your 1L year who have already done significant preparation as far as figuring out what they're going to do for that 1L summer, getting interviews for these kinds of internships and uh, maybe even connections that will lead to clerkships. 
There are so many things that people need to know when they are starting law school and the information gaps between people who are not first gen parents or attorneys, perhaps parents or judges and those who are not is enormous and it gets wider and there aren't necessarily the supports at every law school to make up for those gaps. Um, I think it's important to gain work experience, even that extra year where you study for and get a better LSAT score and also understand what kind of law you want to practice. It makes you a better, more compelling applicant and you won't just treat law school as like a second undergrad. So, Well, yeah. and that why, right? I mean, if you have a why for what you're doing and where you're going, it's going to make 1L grades, that whole experience so much easier because it's like, okay, I got to do this for this as opposed to just, okay, I'm here. <laughs> that was my experience too, Nathan. I was like, I was coming from... Um, a more science background too. So the whole shift to law school was a shock to me. I, I just, I was really going in ready to take notes more based on what is factually true. Like, oh, tell me what is the case? What is, what are we going to learn here? Like science, right? Like what, yeah. what's the latest discovery? And it's like, no, no, no. This is just, this is a discovery. This is an exploration of the evolution of the law. I mean, that, <laughs> that whole thing just like twisted me up, but yeah. Well, and the schools themselves, I mean, especially if you're talking to admissions, their job is to sell you. Their job is to get you to apply today. And that's it. That's their only job. Um, so, you know, they're going to they're not going to tell you to take your time, get work experience, uh, maybe network via your undergrad to talk to some judges who are alums. They're not going to tell you any of that kind of stuff. What they're going to tell you is law school is a transformative experience. You should be open-minded. Who knows what you're going to find once you come to our magical halls. And, you know, then it's so, okay. So then that's what happens is you got like 90% of the class that's sitting there totally clueless and you've got 10% of the class who's already got shit lined up. And, you know, those people are also more likely to be there on a scholarship and they're more likely to get the best opportunities that that school has to offer. Um, it's just, a, as always, it feels like on this show, it's a cautionary tale to just make sure you have some idea what you're getting yourself into before you just dive right into law school this fall. Definitely. Knowing why you want to go and what kind of law you want to practice is going to focus you. It's going to make it possible to get through, like you said, those really challenging 1L classes because you know you are working toward a goal. And being intentional about why you're going to law school is the most important thing. Thanks for uh, coming on, Aliza. Do you, how can people reach out to you? How can they find the legal, what is it, accountability project? I'm, I'm sure they can just Google that, but what, yeah. Yeah, our website is legalaccountabilityproject.org. So they can check out our website, join our mailing list, support us. We visit a lot of law schools. So I'll see a bunch more students on campuses this year. I'm really active on social media, LinkedIn, um, my name at Aliza Schatzman and the LAP as well, and on Twitter as well. So all the socials. Uh, does your site have a list of participating schools? Is that something that you're getting closer to making public to shame the schools that are not participating? Uh, it'll be up when we're ready to make some announcements, whether we shame schools, that's a separate question. <laughs> well, we'll do the shaming. <laughs> I think we've already talked about one school that deserves some shaming. So. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. Nathan, did you have any last questions? No. Uh, thank you, Elisa. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. Be LSAT famous. Please ask questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email our amazing help team at help at lsatdemon.com. You can also check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 418 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.